Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church, uh, and I hope you all had a really happy Thanksgiving. I'm so thankful for each and every one of you, uh, whether you're, it's your first time visiting with us this morning, um, whether you're catching up on the podcast, I know we've got a lot of people traveling this week, um, or whether you're here in person, I'm so glad to, to see all of you this morning. My name is Julie. I'm one of the pastors here at Resurrection City, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we will head into our first Advent message of the season. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this season, for us to remember uh, what it means to slow down and to wait for you, what it means to listen to you, to hear your voice, and to know that Ultimately, we can have hope because you have already come and that we know that you will be coming again to make all things new. So we pray this morning that we would hear from you, from your word, um, from the stories that we are going to look at today. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so as I mentioned, we're in Advent, uh, and something that I've noticed as I've, we've preached through kind of this Advent season over the last few years is that the Christmas story is both beautifully simple, that we can learn it and understand it from a young age, whether we're you know, playing with a nativity set or just hearing the stories, even um, it, I remember hearing it in Charlie Brown Christmas, if anyone watched that special growing up. Uh, it's something so simple, we can understand it as a child, that a baby is born and that it means something important. And at the same time, it is a very complex story. In many ways, it is like being dropped into a really complex uh, TV show that has a lot of different characters, and each, uh, each character has a lot of different history. And it's like it's a, a show that takes place in a world that is different from ours that we aren't familiar with, and that we really have to try to you know, pay attention in order to understand how it all works. And so, while the Christmas story remains beautiful and simple, I think there's also a lot uh, that can benefit us when we dig into some of that complex complexity, some of the things um, like the history that is the story is picking up on, and the world, and how it is different uh, from the one that we live in. So, this morning, I want to look at two different stories in the Bible, uh, one that leads up to Jesus' birth, and one that sort of happens long, long time ago that the story leading up to Jesus' birth really draws on, something from the Old Testament. And our whole theme for this series is going to be about hearing from God. So we're going to really look at some of the people who first heard this good news announcement about Jesus coming. So we're going to, this morning, look at Zechariah. And then next week, Brett Ripley, one of our uh, leadership team members, is going to look at Mary's response to hearing the good news. And then we're going to look at Elizabeth. And lastly, we're going to come back around to Zechariah, because as you're going to see today, his first time doesn't go so well. So we're going to give him a do-over when we get to the end. And because there's all this complexity, I sort of always feel like when it comes to Advent, it's like story time with Pastor Julie because I have to like explain kind of some of the context and some of the things going on in it. So we're going to do that today as we look at these uh, two stories that I think really help us see um, the, this idea of hope in, during Advent and what it means to be hopeful and what 
you know, what it looks like when we choose something other than hope. Okay, so story number one. Like I said, we're going to be looking at Zechariah. So Luke chapter 1, verses, we're going to read verses 5 through 22, which I know is a lot, but I'm going to stop and offer some uh, thoughts as we go along. So verse 5, in the time of Herod, or in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was a, is also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. So we're establishing characters here. First, we see Zechariah is a priest, and he and his wife Elizabeth, they don't have any children. In fact, they are past the age of childbearing, right? So this is like, biologically speaking, not going to happen for them. And the text goes out of its way to make sure we know that this is not because of anything they have done. Because in this time period, if you were not able to have children, it was sort of looked at as oh, well, you must have done something. You must have some kind of sin or some kind of problem in your life that's unresolved that's leading to this barrenness. And so the text makes sure we know this was not their fault. It is just a, a biological problem. So we see that Zechariah is a priest with a solid background and Elizabeth has a similarly solid background that kind of reference her ancestors. And their barrenness is not a punishment as some people might have thought. So moving on through it, we see uh, once when Zechariah's division was on duty, so basically there were a lot of priests, so many that they had them divided up into these like units or divisions. The closest thing I can think of is kind of like military, right? There's these different units of priests. And so Zechariah was on duty. He was serving as a priest before God. And verse 9 says, He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So this was a uh, custom that was uh, drawn by lot. So the person who got to go and burn incense was sort of picked by a lottery, and this was their opportunity. They would go into the holy place and burn incense before God. And I know that to us the sounds sort of just like, not really sure exactly what that means. Great, burning incense. We light candles, sure. Uh, but this was like a really important thing in the life of a priest. It was like a once-in-a-career lifetime opportunity for Zechariah. Many priests never actually even got this opportunity. Uh, and if they did, it happened one time only, and it was this incredibly special thing. And as they go in and burn incense, everybody else gathers around to kind of worship and pray as they go in and do this, uh, this piece of the priest duties. So this is like a really important moment for Zechariah. I think we have to keep that in mind. It's like a career high. So he's feeling pretty good. And then next uh, in the story, we see an angel of the Lord appears to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, 
and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah so says he's startled, he's gripped with fear. This is like he was on this career high and then suddenly something really unexpected happens. And so he says to the he asks the angel, "How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years." So an angel shows up promises that Zechariah is going to have a child after all of these years and after he thinks this is like physically impossible. And not only that, but then he says that this child is going to be really special and important in the faith. He'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll have the spirit, the Holy Spirit before he's even born. And he's going to bring a bunch of people back to God. And lastly, and most importantly, he's going to prepare people for the Lord. So Zechariah is a little freaked out, and honestly, I don't blame him. I think I would be questioning my sanity a little bit if this happened to me. So he asks, how can I be sure of this? His wife has passed her childbearing years. He entered the temple to pray for all of Israel, not to pray necessarily for him and his family. And now he hears this news that he's going to have a son. I'm guessing it was probably a pretty overwhelming experience, uh, and we're going to spend the rest of the sermon kind of unpacking how he responds to this. But let's, let's finish out the story here. We see the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been spent, sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. You have to remember, this was like a normal thing. So they're out there praying, and they're like, did he like, get struck down dead in there? Like, what's going on? Why is he not coming out? And then it says, when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. Now, I really feel for Zechariah in this passage, right? He's, he gets chastised here and told he's not going to be able to speak because he didn't believe what the angel told him. And his doubt doesn't necessarily change what's going to happen. The angel still says, this is going to happen at the appointed time, but you will not be able to speak until that happens. So it, it is encouraging. God doesn't say, like, well, guess I picked the wrong guy. Let's go start over and try with someone else. But he does say, you're, gonna, you're not going to speak until we, get to this, until we get to it actually happening. And then he has to go outside and try to explain this to a whole big group of people just like miming it, right? This sounds like the absolute worst game of charades ever. How do you explain like an angel of the Lord appeared to me and I'm going to have a baby? Like people must have truly thought he was losing his mind. But somehow he manages to get uh, the idea across that he had a vision, and people seem to understand that there's something going on there. So this whole day has been a crazy experience for Zechariah. It goes from like the best day ever, right? He gets this career high moment. He gets chosen to do this special thing, to scary when the angel appears, to probably really confusing, and then lastly, I would imagine pretty frustrating if you're now not allowed to speak and you're trying to explain to other people what is going on. 
So all in all, if you put yourself in his shoes, for me, I find it's not hard to understand his reaction to it all. And scripture doesn't actually tell us what he was thinking. I really wish it did, because I think that would be fascinating. Uh, But what we do get is his question. So in verse 18, he asks, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Seems like a reasonable question. But it's ultimately what gets him in trouble with the angel and gets him silenced. And one of the really interesting things that we'll see next week is that when Gabriel the angel appears to Mary and gives her a similar uh, announcement, Mary asks the question, how will this be since I am a virgin? And yet, she doesn't get quite the response. She doesn't get silenced like Zechariah does. So what's the difference? And you could maybe say, oh, well, Mary's just asking a logistical question, right? Like, how is this going to happen? How's it going to work? We don't really know. We don't get an insight into her mind either. But what we do see is that Zechariah didn't believe the angel when it appeared to him. And it's probably hard to believe a claim like that. But I would hope that if we were ever going to believe something like that, you'd probably be a little bit more open to it on a day where you've been chosen, like ordained by God to go in and have this special moment as a priest, and that you have an angel of the Lord appear to you. But he still doesn't believe it. And I think the big reason why, if I had to use a a sanctified imagination here, is that Zechariah responds with cynicism. I think that's ultimately why he doesn't believe this promise that is given to him. Now, I told you that we were going to look at two different stories today. So that's the first story. And we'll see that he's not actually the only one who responds this way when God speaks to people in the Bible. And because uh, people, original hearers of this story, original people who are there, would have known the Old Testament really well, they probably would have had some of these Old Testament stories coming to mind for them. So I want to look at a second story Uh, where we see someone respond in a similar way to God coming and making an announcement to them. And that, those people are Abraham and Sarah. So Abraham is, he's like the father of the Israelites. He's the OG. He's who everyone thinks of uh, when they think about the, you know, Old Testament, like the Israelites, they think of Abraham. He's their guy. Uh, And I think This story in Luke, a lot of scholars think, is really drawing on this story with Abraham and Sarah. So a little background if you're unfamiliar. Abraham, his first introduction to talking with God, having a conversation with him, starts in Genesis 12. And God calls Abraham, and he gives him this promise. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. This is a pretty big, impressive promise. And sometime later, Abraham starts to feel confused about this promise because he, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, has not been able to have any children. And he's sort of asking, okay, God, how am I supposed to be this great nation if I can't even have a child? And in that time, you know, your lineage was incredibly important. So God speaks to him again, and he says, In Genesis 15, he says, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he says, so shall your offspring be. 
And because, you know, they probably didn't have light pollution back then the way we do, I'm guessing he could probably see a lot of stars. So he's given this promise from God. Not only will I make you a great blessing, but you are going to have many uh, people in your lineage. And impressively, Abraham believes this promise from God. But even though he believes it, there's someone else in his family who doesn't. And that's his wife, Sarah. And I'm telling you an abbreviated version of this story. There's a lot more stuff that kind of happens in the middle. Sarah tries to take things into her own hands, makes a huge mess of it. Uh, And then we get this crazy story that happens in Genesis 18. It's a weird story. I'm kind of glad I'm not taking questions uh, this week (laughs) because you might get some interesting ones. Um, But basically what happens is these three men appear to Abraham, and somehow these three men are God. So I don't have time to really get into the rest of that, but we pick up there, uh, and one of the men says to them, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. Sounds familiar, right? So Sarah laughed to herself, and she thought, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, now will I have this pleasure? And the Lord says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. This part's really my favorite. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. God likes to get the last word here. Um, After reading this story, I was like, hmm, I wonder if part of the reason he uh, silences Zechariah is like, no, 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 we're not doing this again. (laughs) I'm going to just, you know, tell you how it is, and then we're going to be done. But we see that Sarah had a similar reaction to Zechariah. She thinks, really, now, after all of these years, after all of this waiting and this pain and this heartache, Now I'm going to have a child. Like, great, funny joke, thanks. Right? That's how she feels. And her laugh was probably sarcastic or scoffing. Uh, We can surmise that because she tries to cover it up. She tries to lie about it, right? And when we try to lie about something, we usually probably didn't have the greatest intentions in the first place. And the response is, is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah thought it was too hard, but... As the story goes on, you see that God keeps his word. And just as he said, a year later, they have a son. And we see that Sarah did have somewhat of a sense of humor. Uh, They decide to name him Isaac, which means he laughs. So you get a little full circle there. And now I wanted to tell both of these stories because I think that they help us to see that if we ever feel cynical... If we ever feel tired of waiting, unsure about what God is doing in the world or in our lives, we're not alone. There are actually some pretty relatable characters uh, in the Bible. But I also think that both stories show us why we can choose hope over cynicism. And I think one of the big lessons we see is that Christian hope is centered on God and what he has done. Around this time of year, hope kind of comes up more often as a topic. And kids hope for certain presents. We hope and anticipate that we'll be able to see loved ones. 
we, you know, the snow and the Christmas lights and the Christmas decorations kind of, you know, make it feel like anything is possible, at least if you're watching a Hallmark movie or some kind of Christmas special. But the interesting thing about these movies and about just kind of how people think about it is that hope kind of becomes this mysterious, vague concept. It's ambiguous. It's not really centered on anyone or anything. It's just like thrown out into the universe. And I often see things like this in media or on social media, people talking about um, like affirmations or manifesting something, if you've heard this language before. They might say things like, I expect great things for my life and repeat that, you know, kind of as their affirmation. Or they say, my life is just going to keep getting better and better. Uh, or another one I've seen, my best life is coming to me. And when I see these things, I often think, how do you know? Like, what, how do you feel like you can hold on to that statement when there's really nothing behind it other than you creating it? And really, I think, wow, that requires a lot of faith. And sometimes, maybe even more faith than I have. It's just centered on the wrong thing. Because as Christians, our faith isn't just in the universe or some kind of generalized concept. It's actually a person. We have faith in God himself. And because God is a person, we can look at his character and his actions throughout history as a basis for why we should have hope in him. He has a track record, right? We can look at that and see who he is, what he has done, and what that means for us. And as these short stories that we've looked at today show us, we can look at scripture and see how God keeps his word. When he promises something, we can have real, actual hope that it will happen because he always follows through on his promises. He kept his word to Abraham, even though it took a long time, probably a lot longer than any of them expected, and then he uh, fulfills his promise to Zechariah and Elizabeth. They shouldn't have been able to have a child, but God made a way for that to happen. And even though Zechariah doubted God's promise, that didn't stop God from keeping it. Because again, our hope is not in ourselves and our ability to believe and just, you know, keep the faith, but it's in God himself, who has proven us to be faithful no matter what. We see this in uh, a book in the New Testament called Hebrews. Hebrews 6 talks about this and even references the story we talked about today. It says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what he promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. So the author of Hebrews is saying, God's word in and of itself would have been just enough because God doesn't lie. And yet God makes an oath for Abraham to try and say, 
look, even if you don't trust me, I'm doubling this. I am showing you how faithful I am to my promises. It is a binding thing, and it's really going to happen. And we not only have God's word, but we have all of God's history. We can see how he has fulfilled his promises over and over again to his people. And that's kind of what we do every year during Advent. As we talked about this morning, or if you read the Advent devotional, uh, we talk about how Advent it just means coming. And it's really referring to two separate uh, instances where something is coming. And the first one is Jesus' birth. So many people were waiting, anticipating uh, the Messiah to be born. And now we wait for him to come back. We use the first coming of Jesus' birth, that first promise, and how it was fulfilled, to give us hope as we wait for the second. Because God has promised that he is coming back, and we know that he never breaks his promises. And the beautiful thing about these promises to both Abraham and to Zechariah is that they were never just to those two individuals. There's always something bigger. They were a part of some bigger promise that God was making to every one of us, and that is his promise of redemption. Ultimately, Jesus is the answer to both Abraham and Zechariah's Zechariah's promises. So as we celebrate Jesus' birth, we also celebrate that God is going to keep his promise to make the whole world new again. As the angel asked Sarah, is anything too hard for God? I want to end with some personal thoughts on on hope and what that means for us in in our current experiences. Because as I've been saying, these promises uh, to Abraham and Zechariah, they had big eternal implications, but they also had personal implications for them and their families. Deeply personal, right? Both of these couples prayed for children for a really long time, And they felt maybe as if their prayers were going unanswered or as God wasn't listening to them. And God could have done this a lot of different ways, right? When you think about uh, Zechariah's promise of having a son, his son will ultimately be John the Baptist who prepares the way for Jesus. God could have done that a lot of different ways. He could have had John come to a different family that already had children. He could have given John the title and the... uh, kind of the role that he had once he was older. But God chose to have Elizabeth and Zechariah, who were desperately waiting for a child, to be the ones to receive this blessing. And for me personally, I don't have a hard time believing the like big implications of God's faithfulness. I actually take a lot of comfort in the fact that God keeps his promises, and I know that one day he's coming back. It's what keeps me going. It's what gives me motivation. I do, however, struggle with believing that God hears my prayers in the here and now and that I can have hope that he will do something about them in my current life. I relate to Zechariah and Sarah's cynical responses. If you've ever prayed for something consistently and not gotten an answer or felt like God's not listening to you, then maybe you do too. And as I consider their stories, it's easy for me to to blame it on their circumstances, right? It's totally understandable. Anybody in their position would have responded the way that they did. It's easy to not believe. But that's not actually what the stories show us. 
Even though Zechariah didn't believe, we'll see in a couple of weeks that Elizabeth did. And she responded immediately with joy to this promise from God. And as we saw in Abraham and Sarah's story, Abraham did believe, and Sarah still struggled. And it's, it's interesting to think about why, and we'll talk more about this when we get to Elizabeth, but why did Zechariah and Elizabeth have such different responses to this experience? And if I had to guess, I'm betting that Zechariah allowed his heart to become hardened the longer that they waited, the longer that he prayed for a child and didn't have that prayer answered. I'm guessing he let the discouragement sink in. And to protect himself from continually feeling hurt, he let that cynicism take over. Uh, I, recently, a friend sent me something um, from speaker Jackie Hill Perry. She's a Christian author and speaker. Uh, and I thought it really applied to the, these stories. She says, when we have a circumstance or something that feels too big to believe, we start to make up a God in our own image. We start to imagine that God is more like us than he is himself. And if that's the case, we imagine that God must have limitations or he must not be consistently good. We start to believe that God cannot do the impossible or he can and he just won't do it for me. It's hard to remain open and to keep our hearts soft in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of waiting, in the midst of grief. It's hard to continue to see God as he is, that he is powerful and loving, but it's not impossible. Elizabeth will show us that when we read her story in a few weeks. And Jackie Hill Perry, in her um, talk, goes on to say, if God is good, then he has the power to answer our impossible prayers. He also has the power to give us an impossible faith to still trust him, even if he doesn't. He gives us faith to still trust him in the waiting, to still trust him even when things don't turn out the way that we hoped that they would, or maybe as we continue to wait and continue to pray and continue to anticipate. And really, that's what Advent is all about. It's about trusting God and hoping even through the waiting. So I want us to kick off this Advent season by examining our hope. As we celebrate the way that Jesus has already come to us at Christmas, and as we wait and anticipate the day that he will come again, I want to ask some questions. Are you believing that God keeps his word? Do you truly believe and anticipate his return? And are you believing that he is good and you can have hope that he can work in your life here and now, even in the waiting? So I invite you to consider those questions um, as we head into our time of worship and communion and prayer. So we are going to take communion. Um, feels, you know, maybe at first it feels a little strange to do communion during Advent because it's kind of jumps ahead in the story. But as some of the Christmas songs we sang already this morning uh, remind us, that is kind of the story and the long uh, vision that we are, are looking ahead towards. So as you take communion today, I hope that it is, again, another reminder of hope and uh, of the ways that God keeps his promises. And you don't have to be a member at Res City to take communion, but we do ask that you are someone who uh, has committed to following Jesus. 
So we are going to head into that time of worship through song. Uh, you can take communion as we worship. And then if you would like to receive prayer, um, if there's anything that you feel like you need hope for, I invite you to, uh, to talk to the person in the back as they, and they will pray for you. But I'm going to pray for all of us together, and then we will head into that time. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you do keep your word, that we don't have to question, we don't have to wonder, that we can know by looking to your son's birth as we celebrate Christmas and also looking ahead to his death and his resurrection. We know that you have been putting this story in motion for a very long time and that we are a part of that and we thank you that we get to be a part of your family, a part of uh, something that actually has hope centered around someone real, not just some vague concept. So Lord, we pray. Uh, I pray specifically if there are people today who are just feeling cynical, if there are things that you feel like struggle to, a struggle to hope and a struggle to believe that God can really work in their lives, Lord, I pray for them, um, that you would be with them, that you would comfort them, and that you would give them hope this Advent season. In your name we pray. Amen.